invite you to take your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 2. If you're using a Bible there in front of you, it should be page 912. We're going to be looking at Paul as he continues to talk to us about uh, the theme, Understanding the Human Condition. We're looking at Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 25 to 29, and then the first couple of verses of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 2, verse 25, circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not then be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. What advantage, then, is there in being a Jew, or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. Let's pray. Lord, we gather today, and every person here comes with their own thoughts and questions. And Lord, we ask that you would speak to us from the Scriptures. Thank you for making this time for us, that we can be instructed that we can be responders as we worship in our songs. Guide us now into truth today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. As he continues his study in Romans 1 through 3, seeking to give us an understanding of the human condition, Paul addresses a question here at the beginning of Romans 3 in verse 1 and 2. And it is a question that basically asks, what does a religious background, a heritage of faith, do for you? I have heard people raise this question uh, on a number of different occasions. A number of those times, the question was being raised by parents who later in their journey as parents had seen adult children leave their home and we're not following Christ. And the question went something like this. We see so many young adults and young marrieds who seem to love Jesus. And a number of them have no Christian background. And now they've embraced the Lord. They're zealous for the Lord. It makes us wonder, is there benefit in having a, a Christian heritage? Maybe we should have just let our kids go wild. And they taste the world, they, they try it, they do Vanity Fair, and uh, eventually they're brought to see, hopefully, that Jesus is the real answer. I've also seen other individuals who have raised a similar question, often young adults, where they'll hear the stories of other young adults of faith, and they will have this dramatic story of being rescued from one disastrous life uh, addiction or malady after another, and they look at themselves and say, my whole story is, is, is unflamboyant. It's, uh, I just sort of 
received Jesus and trucked along, and, and yeah, I see sin in my life and my heart, but I, you know, I, I, but maybe I should be out there. Maybe there's more glory for Christ. I mean, what benefit is there of, of the heritage of faith? That is the question that's being asked here. It's a real question. And it is a real question to the people that are addressing it here in Romans chapter 3. Because in Romans chapter 2, Paul has been talking about two different groups that are in the Roman churches. One of those are people with a religious background. And he first says to them, a religious heritage does not deliver people from God's verdict. Then he looks to the other group of people who are from what would be more called a pagan background, um, non-monotheistic, non-Bible background, non-Judeo heritage, and and he says they also, an irreligious heritage does not deliver people from God's verdict. He said both. Now he comes back to the first group of people with this religious heritage And he raises the question that he knows they're asking. To me, my favorite kind of speaking to to be under is somebody that raises questions that I'm already raising in my head, and they raise them for me. That's exactly what Paul's doing. He says, I know what you're thinking. I know the questions that's going on. Probably there there were people actually that had verbalized this to him. And he says, okay, I'm going to raise the question with you. What does a religious background do for you? Now, The reason that these people are raising this question is because of real choices that they had made. And you can imagine how they feel. Paul is saying, look, there's no difference between those that are circumcised, those that are uncircumcised. There's no difference between those with a pagan background, those with a uh, 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 moral, religious background of, of the faith. Basically, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about grace, and so the backgrounds are irrelevant, and, and they're saying, really? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter at all? I mean, if it doesn't matter at all, why are we doing this? And, they, and I think if they were here and gave the, we gave them voice, they'd say stuff like this. Paul, you're highlighting the negatives of our heritage. You say it can make us blind to ourselves. He certainly said that in chapter 2. Religious people can be dangerous people. He's saying that, you know, you've put your pride in that and you're arrogant and your trust is in that. You find your security in in your religious background. And I think they might say, very frankly, in good conscience and integrity, say, we get it. We know that, that uh, a person can have a, ba- a faith background, and that faith background actually can just inoculate them to the real disease. My guess is there's some of you in that status. You, have, you, you, you grew up familiar with the Christian thing. You know a lot of verses, you know a lot of stories, you, you, you knew it, you knew the culture, you know about this Jesus stuff, you could share the gospel, and you say, I get it. I've been there, I've tried it, and, and, and quite honestly, I'm just here today because we're going out to lunch. And, and you would say, I've already done it. May I suggest to you, you have been inoculated. You have tasted it. You know, an inoculation is basically giving you a little bit of the disease, just enough to keep you from the real disease. And so these guys might say, we get that, there's a danger so, does that mean we don't have religious heritage? We don't have faith? We, 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 we shouldn't be practicing? They said, after all, Paul, aren't there any advantages? Aren't there any benefits? What if our kids or, or, or our loved ones or some of the people in our church 
don't follow Christ later on? Does that mean we shouldn't even bother? I mean, what does it mean? What are you saying, Paul? And I think if we really get what they're saying, we, we need to hear that. I think they would say something like this. Paul, you need to realize this. We have kept our traditions as a people while here in Rome. We were always taught that we're the covenant people that we are the community that God has chosen and that we're special and, and, and that we are his chosen people and that that very reality has caused us to raise our families differently against the culture here in Rome. It's cost us to do this. We've chosen to live with a higher moral, sta- moral standard than our neighbor's. We don't worship idols, and we don't call Caesar our Lord, though most people do. We don't have season tickets at the Colosseum. Our husbands are not hanging out after work at the immoral public baths. We've made those choices because of our religious heritage. Does it matter? And what Paul is going to argue is saying it does matter. It matters. It makes a difference. It makes a difference in ways you don't know and you don't see. And that's what I'm going to try to demonstrate in our, in our thoughts this morning. So what he says is, yeah, there is value. Um, so what does a religious background do for you? And again, I want to just remind you what the word religion means. When I use the word religious background, because I know that culturally when we use the word religion or religious today, it is <clears throat> almost entirely a negative connotation, and I recognize the danger of this. Um, basically today, to religion, people are talking about external, they're talking about self-effort, self-righteousness, self-morality, pride, all the things that go with religiosity, But the word religion is a beautiful word. I mentioned this in an earlier message in Romans. The word religion is from two words in the Latin, re and lige. Lige actually means to bind or connect. Re means to do it again. It means to reconnect. As Augustine pointed out, the word religion is a beautiful word for the Christian. It is a beautiful description of Christianity. We are trying to in the power of Christ, have our lives reconnected into a relationship with God that we had as a disconnect because of sin. The problem is most people, when they think of religion, they don't think of it in that sense, but I am. I'm thinking of it in, in the best sense that a, this is a religious family. This is a, a, a faith heritage, and Paul is saying, yeah, there is value. Even if the person does not ever embrace Christ, there is reasons why it is beneficial that they were raised in a heritage of faith. So let's look at what he says. And what he's going to, first of all, is a quick statement he says in verse 25 to 29, and he says what your religious background won't do for you. And I'm going to just summarize this. It won't provide you with a standing before God. You won't find your acceptance through your Jewish background. He says, look, I'm talking to you that are circumcised. Circumcision was the outward sign that someone was a part of the covenant community. And he says, if you are a part of the, the covenant community, the physical covenant community, and yet you are not living according to the laws of God, you actually are a 
non-member of the community. You are uncircumcised, if you will. As a matter of fact, those that are physically uncircumcised, that are honoring God with their, their lives, they are actually the true circumcision because, and then he says this shocking statement in verse 28 and 29, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. This is shocking stuff. This is inflammatory stuff. And it is what causes them to say, then what advantage has the Jew? Then what advantage is there in being raised in the heritage of faith? And that's what Paul's going to answer. And this is what he says in verse 1 and 2. He says, what advantage then is there in being a Jew or what value is there being in a part of the, the covenant community marked by circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. If you go through Romans 3, you'll never find the second of all. He doesn't say it until all the way back into the book of Romans, uh, verse nine, chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. But basically, this is his focus. He is saying it's that you have the words of God that entitles you to a relationship with God. It's the foundational reality. He says, what value is there? You alone have been given the words of God. He says it this way in, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? In Psalms, he says it this way. He has revealed his words to Jacob, his laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know his laws. He says, as I've been presenting to you in Romans chapter 1 and 2, everyone has what's called general revelation, a knowledge of God. He does this in creation. Everyone can see his glory. They see his bigness, his, his power, his godness. They see it in their conscience. We can bring up those slides. They see it in his conscience that, they can, that his voice is written on their, on their hearts and their minds. He says, but you have something infinitely more. By being a part of the heritage of faith, you have received God's special revelation, His very words, His scriptures. He has spoken to you. The God of the cosmos has specifically spoken to His people, and you have this revelation. Now, there is an Old Testament passage that I think gives perfect commentary to what Paul is talking about here in Romans 3 when he says, what do you have? What is the benefit of being in the heritage of faith? You have the Word of God. You have the Scriptures. What? Okay, well, what does that do for me? How does that bless this individual that was raised and then goes off and, and, and lives totally apart from those truths? How is that a benefit? Well, Paul is arguing it is, and I'd like to just draw our attention to Psalm 19, because in Psalm 19, it, tell, it talks about general and special revelation. Verses 1 through 6, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and there is not a speech or language where their voice is not heard. Everybody has general revelation. But then in verses 7 through 12, the remainder of the chapter of Psalm 19, he says, But you have special revelation. You have the words of God. And in 
Psalm 19, verse 7 through 12, he tells us five benefits of having that word, which is exactly, I think, the commentary on what he's saying was, why is it a benefit that you have the words of God? Psalm 19 tells us, and I'd like to look at those five things quickly. Number one, the heritage of the word of God is a benefit to everyone because they revive the soul. Psalm 19, verse 7. John Bunyan has written his most famous book, Pilgrim's Progress, story of one guy in particular, Christian that's on his way uh, to the celestial city, heaven. It's his life journey. It's an allegory. At this point in the story, he has a friend along with him whose name is uh, Hopeful. And Hopeful and Christian get off the path. They get in a place called Bypass Meadow. They're there by themselves. They're not where they should be. And they haven't followed the path that they're supposed to follow and they wake up being jostled by this, this giant orc-like looking guy called Giant Despair. He's got a big club, he manacles them, and he drags them back to his prison in, in his castle, which is called Doubting Castle. He's Giant Despair. For four days, they're in the castle, castle dungeon, and every day, Giant Despair comes up with his club and literally, physically beats the tar out of these poor guys. They're bloody, they're bruised, they're broken men, and this has been going on for four days. On the fourth night, he comes to them, and he says to them, look, here's some poison. I'm leaving it in your cell. You might as well kill yourself, save you and me the, the, the effort, because tomorrow I'm killing you both. And here they are at night, and Christian's totally despairing, Hopeful's trying to be a little positive, and, and he says, well, let's pray, and hopefully, Christian's like, and, but all of a sudden, Christian remembers this thing in his pocket, and he brings out this key, which he was given, and it's called the key of promise, and it was told to him that on his journey, he would face terrible afflictions and hardships and struggles and troubles. But this key of the promises of God would be that which would open every door and, and free him. And he says, this is the door out of, out of, out of doubt, a doubting castle. This is the door out of jail. This is the door out of the, the sway of despair. This will get me out. And it does get him out. And the picture by Bunyan is that it is resting in the promises of God, remembering the promises of God that brings benefit and freedom to our lives. In late high school... Though I had been raised in a Christian family, my parents loved the Lord. My dad came to know Jesus months before I was born. And when my dad received Jesus, my dad was all in. But late in high school, I just totally bagged the whole thing, uh, went my own way, did it as I went off to college and was living, trying to find my value and significance and joy in everything but God. And eventually came to the end of myself. I mean, people didn't know looking at me, but I knew I was utterly miserable. I was partying. I was doing everything I could find, every place I could find to find meaning and joy in my life. And finally, I lay down prostrate on the floor of my, my dorm room, and I just said, God, if you're real, if you'll help me, um, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I, I, I don't like how my life is going with me in charge. God, at that point, I believe, saved me. I believe that was when I was born again. But an interesting thing happened 
soon after that, in the, in the literally months to come, I had a number of people comment to me who had walked with Jesus for many years and knew what faith looked like, that there was a remarkable acceleration in my, my walk with Christ. Now, it was nothing to do with me being a uniquely spiritual guy or a uniquely special or zealous guy. I believe strongly, wholeheartedly, that it was because of a heritage of faith that I had, that there were keys in my pockets, that I had lived my life and gone out and done my own thing, but I'd never used those keys. But all of a sudden, I remembered how my dad would, would when he was struggling, would, would, would go and, and just be alone, read his Bible, and come out, and he was a different man. And I remember them processing situations, and I remember messages that I'd heard from my pastor that all of a sudden began to play through my mind, and, and, and I began to apply those things. There was a heritage there that had been dormant and, and seemingly non-existent in my being, but it was there. And when the heart of the Spirit of God, it was God that changed me. When my heart wanted to be revived, all of those tools that had been implanted in the past, they weren't gone. The keys were still there. They needed to be appropriated and actualized and used. But I thank God that I had that heritage of faith which accelerated my understanding of walking with Jesus, which I am convinced would have been much more circuitous and confusing and twisted if I hadn't fallen back into that which I had often unwillingly been schooled in and trained in. The Scriptures revive the soul, and it may not be now, it may be years from now, that you or that one you're praying for embraces and, and allows their soul to be revived. But all that has gone in is not lost. There is a foundation that has been planted. There are keys there that can be appropriated one day. There's a second thing he tells us. There's a value of a heritage of faith. The Scriptures make wise the simple. Psalm 19, verse 7. In the book of Proverbs, the simple is the person who's sort of guileless yet, and gullible, hasn't yet made a life choice. There's two paths in the book of Proverbs. There's the way of folly, which is described as twisted and gets darker. And then there's the path of wisdom. And the book of Proverbs very clearly says that the, that the default path that people on the path, that the simple will typically follow because of our fallenness, is the path of folly. The path of folly is described in all living color. It is described as if you fully embrace the path of folly and, and go down, the farther you go, the more you find yourself trapped in a, in a lifestyle of folly. It describes drunken debauchery, sexual flings, and, ensla and, and enslaving immoral immorality, violence, rage, even armed robbery, public dishonesty are all there as one plunges down. I don't think Proverbs is saying you're going to hit all these, but he says this is what you're going to, you're going to get involved in some of these things. Some of these things are going to put their tentacles around you as you go down the path of folly. And then we read this verse here in Psalm 19.7, and it says, the Scriptures make wise the simple. There's another path in Proverbs. It's the path of wisdom. It is portrayed as a lifestyle of moderation, generosity, control, serving others. 
It leads to loyalty, faithfulness, concern for others, healthy relationships. And God says that one of the byproducts of a background of the Scriptures is, is that it helps to make the simple wise that it preserves, it is a preservative for the simple from fully imbibing and, and scooting down the slide of the path of folly. Because the religious, biblically-centered family tend to be moderate, ordered, living under authority, having a moral compass. It's striking that even in the secular media today, when someone is described as from a God-fearing background, it doesn't mean, and we don't associate that to mean that they came from a riotous, uncontrolled, violent, and dissipated background. A heritage of faith centered on God's Word usually provides some level of sanctuary from the extreme, uncontrolled living that the path of folly can offer. You may be here, and, and you have some background in the faith, but you're not drinking the Kool-Aid at all. I'll tell you, you don't have any idea what you've been saved of just by your heritage. You say, well, I see all these flaws and these holes. They're there. I see the hypocrisy. It's probably there. It's there in all of us. But one of the benefits of a heritage of faith is the Scripture makes wise the simple Third, a heritage of faith, a heritage with the Word of God. The Word of God, Psalm 19, verse 8, brings joy to the heart. Jeremiah, in chapter 15 of, of his book, says in verse 16, Your words were found, and I ate them. And the Word was in me, and the joy, and, and the word was in me, the joy and rejoicing of my heart. God has designed the human machine to run certain ways and on certain things. He knows how our lives work, and he knows that we are designed to find joy through meditation of God speaking into our lives. And you say, well, how does a book make a person joyful? Well, Psalm, uh, Luke 11 says it this way, Blessed is the one who hears the word of God and keeps it. There is a joy, there is a satisfaction, there is a contentedness that comes at just letting God speak into our lives and responding to it. I was recently in a conversation with a young man, young, young married guy, and uh, he was raised in a Christian background, he saw his parents living out their faith, their, their obedience to the Word of God. He has had the truth, he has known it, born-again Christian, um, wants to seize the value of, of raising his family in the church, but in his own expression, has never until recently really allowed the Scripture to just speak into his life. As he's driving in his car, playing the Scripture, as he's meditating, he says, I have never done this. And, and, and he's saying it with absolute amazement. He said, it is amazing how it is speaking into my life, how it is changing my thinking, giving specific examples of, of things that he's been prompted to do he never would have imagined himself doing and now joyfully doing, talking to his friends, saying, guys, you can do all other things, you know, you, but this is it. It's, it's letting the Scripture speak into it. It speaks a joy. Now, he's known the Bible all these years. What is it that is happening 
that is causing him to find the joy that the Scripture brings? Well, obviously, ultimately, it's God. God's prompting, God's working. But I would suggest to you also that he is responding to something that has already been placed into his life. There is a background that he is falling into and seeing the value of, seeing it modeled. There is joy that is being result. The result, there is change that is partly responding and resulting from a background he's been given. Years ago, we were going on vacation, and our car was in the shop. We had a bunch of kids at the time, and uh, so we needed to rent a car for vacation. And I, I wasn't willing with our gang to rent a nice car, so I went to a place called Rent a Wreck. <laughs> it was well-named. But it worked out perfect for me. We got a wreck. We saved bucks. Uh, we got there. We got back. Everything was functional. I wasn't worried. What are we doing to the rental car while I'm up here and they're back there? And, but when we went to get the car, I remember this situation. There was a, a young guy, a guy there. I, I thought he was in his 40s, but it turned out as, as I talked to him more that he was a guy actually in his 20s, and life had just been unkind to him. I mean, he was worn by life. He's a very talkative guy, and as he talked, he explained just about uh, that he had made a lot of bad choices in his life already, that they had taken a toll. He's trying to change his thinking and, and get his life reoriented. We went inside to the office. He was the only one there, and as we walked in the office, his music is playing, and this is back out of his boombox. And I'm, I'm telling you, stereotypically, seeing this guy, this is back, a ways back now, a few years, tattooed, jeweled, um, uh, just his demeanor, his, his, everything about him, I thought, we're going in. And if, uh, if you told me he had a boombox, I'm thinking, head, headbanger, okay, you know, all right. We're going we're gonna to talk like this together. And I went in there, and there is music permeating the room. It was classical music. I'm like, whoa. And, and I'm realizing I'm listening, and this is either Vivaldi or, or Bach or I mean, Brahms. I mean, this is, this is not even Tchaikovsky. You know, this is not the War of 1812. This is very chilled, but it's, it's loud. You can hear it. It's surrounding you. I was fascinated. I said, because it's obvious nobody else there. It's his music. I said, um, do you like classical music? And he said, he said, man, my mother played classical music. And he said, I find it calms me. I listen to it every day. <laughs> it just struck me. I listen to it every day. Now, I can tell you, he was not out the night before doing dope with his buddies and saying, hey, man, let's do a little Vivaldi with the Four Seasons, you know, and play. No, that's not where he was getting it. It came from a background. It came from a heritage. We are shaped much more than we know. And we default in times of struggle and question to things. You do that. I do that. It brings joy to the heart. It affects us. It can speak into us even though we may not particularly be people that are going to look for it ourselves. We are affected by our background. But the fourth thing, i got to move faster. The fourth thing 
The Scripture, we're told in verse 8 of Psalm 19, enlightens the eyes. Psalm 119.11, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is profitable for instruction, for correction, for, for conviction, for child training in righteousness. It shapes us more than we know. Many years ago, one of my sons was 13 or 14 years old and powerful human being, still is, and an influential human being. And we, I had been over the period of time studying for myself the book of Proverbs. I actually spent two years in personal study in the book of Proverbs just saying, God, teach me what wisdom lies living is for me. I, I didn't preach about it for years after that. I was just studying it, learning it, but I was in the midst of this, and one of my big questions was, I have, I have a son that's very influential, and I, I feel like his influence needs to help influence our family a certain direction. I mean, he's just too strong. He, he's twisting it one way or another. And I really felt, and there were specific portions of Scripture, because Proverbs actually identifies different types of people and different types of patterns of life and says, here's how you minister here, here's how you minister here. It's incredibly practical. And I had specific principles that I brought out of that, and it led me to do what some of you will probably think is horrible. But what I did was I went to my son and I said, buddy, um, we need you to bless and contribute to this family. And so, we had just taken down all the oak beams in our living room because we vaulted the ceiling up. And so, these big 12-foot, 14-foot oak beams were lying outside and knew there'd be great firewood, and we heated our house at that time by a wood stove. So, I handed him a saw, hand saw, no cord, no electric cord. And uh, I said, every morning I'm going to get you up at 6 o'clock and I want you to go outside. I want you to spend 45 minutes and I want you to just saw logs and then bring those logs in and we're going to use them to heat our house and, and the family. 6 o'clock. He was homeschooled. I mean, he didn't have to, go to get up to go to school, so he's, he's up. This is a change. Now, that was December and it was cold. And I really felt constrained that I was supposed to keep this on. We did it six days a week. Sunday got off. And I did it December. I did it January. I did it February. And finally, at the end of February, I just felt truly free from the Lord. He's done. In that process, we did heat our home largely through his logs. We also saw, I saw in him a demeanor of satisfaction, he's contributing to the family. It was good, but that wasn't what really made the deal for me. It was when he was 19 or 20 years old, and he was living at a, friend, a house with a bunch of other guys. It wasn't the best of environments, but we felt it was where he was supposed to be. And uh, one day he came by, and he was talking about, he, and he moved out of the house soon after this, but he, was, he talked about one of the guys that was there and how frustrated he was, this guy... Um, it just wasn't responsible. It wasn't this, and this great parenting moment. And he said, Dad, somebody should have made that guy saw logs years ago. <laughs> Th this was a, there is a God moment for me. <laughs> now, 
My son at that time was not saying, I'm so grateful. I get it that God used the book of Proverbs to speak to my dad who spoke into me to go out and saw logs in order that when I'm 19 or 20, I can look and, and evaluate people should be this way and they should be responsible with this and they, and they should work for the benefit of others. He didn't put all that together, I'm sure. But that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. What happened? There was a heritage of faith where God spoke in and it blessed some of you are walking now far from the faith. But I guarantee you, there are, if you came from the faith, there are blessings that you're experiencing. There are things you have been protected from. There are ways you're thinking, and you don't even realize they're just natural to you, but they've been shaped by a good God that has used a godly faith, a godly heritage, not without flaws, Flaws, hypocrisy, man, certainly my house had them. But God uses his word, enlightens eyes, and it goes through everybody that's a part of the culture of faith. The last thing we see is this. It endures forever. Psalm 19, verse 9. It is timeless in its relevance. People want to be relevant in their thinking. The problem is relevant thinking becomes irrelevant thinking very quickly. I've mentioned this before. A hundred years ago, marijuana, heroin, and morphine were all available over the counter at the local corner drug stores. A prominent pharmacist at that time advertised, heroin clears the complexion, gives buoyancy to the mind, regulates the stomach and bowels, and is in fact a perfect guardian of health. Things change. Thinking changing. Relevancy becomes irrelevancy except one source of truth. There is a timeless, enduring message. You may say, come on, man, you're just worshiping a book. Yeah and no. This is not a book to me. This is a record from the, the, the creator of the cosmos. Yes, it is put into a book, and we would call it. The Bible is, uh, Biblos means book. Yes, it's a book, but it's a book like no other. It's a, it's a message from God that he says it endures forever. The truths are not timed. They're not based on current cultural relevancy. They are supraculture. They are timeless, and they speak and the beauty is that any of us who have had the privilege of being in a, a true faith, and I'm not just talking about a religious home that, that went, played the game and was utter hypocrisy, but I'm talking about a, a, a culture, a family, a church, a background of faith that was true, that was real, desiring God. Every one of us has had our shape thinking by thinking. That is not just the winds of our day and our culture, which will change tomorrow, but timeless thinking, enduring thinking, perspectives that supersede culture and contemporary things. So what value is there in a heritage of faith? Is there a value? Paul says loudly, yeah, yeah, there is. 
He says, don't trust in it as, as the way to have a relationship with God. You won't get to God on your parents' faith. But he says, be grateful for it. It offers you a foundation that you are living out of far more than you realize. And it may have preserved you from many things you hadn't recognized. He would also say to us, embrace it. Use the key of promise. Take that which you've had spilled into your life and live out of it. Do what the young man I was talking about earlier is doing. For the first time, really thinking Scripture and letting it speak into his life, and it's just overwhelmingly joyful to him. Start meditating on the Scripture. Eat the Word of God. Use the keys of promise. And I would also say to you parents, as you're waiting for a child or children, keep praying. But know that what has been invested is not in vain. It's not a wash. So I'd like to close our time this morning just inviting all of you to go to God in prayer. And I'd like to suggest a prayer to three different people. Number one, I'd like to speak to those of you that are parents who are burdened over a child or children right now, right here, in the quietness of your own heart, I want you to remember those children before God and say, God, you allowed things to be put into their lives, and I don't see any fruit of it, or at least I, I seem blinded to any fruit of it. Lord, be yourself. Work through this. Renew my own spirit of faith. Rekindle my passion to be praying for my children that they might live out that which they first got in a heritage of faith. I want to speak to you young people or older people that have grown up in a heritage of faith. And you say, yeah, there were holes, there were flaws. Yeah, I'm sure there were. And I mean that sincerely. But I want to encourage you right now to thank God for that heritage of faith because you have benefited by that far more than you're giving credit for. Just right now, say, God, I, I am grateful. There's a lot I've been protected from. I don't even think about it. I see the lacks. I see the flaws. But right now, I want to I wanna embrace with gratitude the blessing. And third, I want to speak to you now that are in the processing journey. I want this so much for this message to encourage you that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It matters. What you're doing is sharing a heritage of truth, which is truth that endures. Say, God, make my children's father, my children's mother, a wholehearted disciple of Christ. Renew my passion for sharing with my children the keys that will be there for them in years to come, even when they're not ready to look for it yet. God, change my children's parents. Take a moment, talk to God, and then I'll lead us in close.
Lord, we agree with the Apostle John when he once said, I have no greater joy than to know that my children walk in truth. Lord, that's our greatest longing as parents. We want our children to be safe. We want our children to be happy. We want our children to be protected. But Lord, we would give all that up that they could know you because we believe in you as life and hope and peace and joy. So, Lord, all the children that have been prayed for today, some of them well into their adulthood, we bring before the throne of grace. We remind you of them today. Oh, God, be at work in their lives. Do what the, the Puritans used to pray. Lord, pursue them like the hound of heaven. Lord, for all of us that have embra been embraced into a heritage of faith, forgive us for our, our ingratitude, for seeing so often the flaws. May we be grateful for what you've blessed us with. And then, Lord, as parents, God, help us Help everyone here that's a mom or a dad to be renewed in their desire to build a, an ark in their family, to build a heritage of faith, regardless of how soon the fruit of that is seen in their children, to faithfully invest and pour their lives into doing that which would provide a heritage of faith and truth for their home. Lord, thank you for speaking into us, for teaching us. Thank you that it matters what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now go in peace to love and serve and enjoy the Lord.